Okay. How many of you went? Okay. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. Other? Anything else? Returning to college. Yeah, pray, pray for our college students. Yes. And I'm sure Jason Nightingale could use our prayers. Um, it's many times as he's done this. The guys memorized entire books of the Bible. Let's pray that God would uh, let this be an occasion not just to see a triviality and to see something unique, but to actually, he's going to speak God's word to us. And it's going to be a good time tonight. So I hope, again, you guys make it tonight, 6 o'clock. Um, to hear the Gospel of John recited in its entirety. Anything else? Okay. Oh, oh, sorry. Back is pretty close to being back to normal. This morning was the first time. Um, as part of my rehab, I have an exercise where I find the pain and press into it. Um, and this morning was the first time I wasn't able to press into the pain because it's just been so hard. Wow. Okay. Praise God. Mary heard her back a while back. She's been slowly recovering, and so that's a praise, and she's having opportunities through what she's learned about nutrition to work closely with some unbelievers. Prayer for boldness in witnessing to them. Okay, any other? Yes. Pray for that, that you got the Lord would give you boldness and words to speak. Any, uh, anything? Yes, Greg. Okay, Greg is having his gallbladder taken out Thursday surgery. Pray for that. Anytime you go under anesthesia, it's always, there's always a small risk and just, uh, Pray for Greg and that recovery from that procedure and that he would not uh, doubt or waver in fear, but to trust that God will be faithful and that God would restore him to us quickly. Any, any other prayer requests or praise? You guys got a lot of them this morning. This is good. Going once. <gasps> yes. And, and make sure, like, pads and a helmet covered in those things, too. Okay. Glenn, you're going on a 10-day motorcycle trip? No, where are you going? <laughs> I, that's a surprise to me. I'll, I'll say that. That's a surprise. Where are you going, Glenn? Where are you going? Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Moto... Trip. Okay. Yes, Wendell. So, and you guys were up in Alaska? No, no. Actually, it was a part of the world you've never been to. Trail of 640 
trail. Okay, back. Okay, okay. Sorry, I'm getting trips confused. You're going on so many vacations and trips, I get confused, Wendell. Okay, it's okay. Okay. Oh, huh? We can certainly praise the Lord for the growing, um, the growing opposition to repent, to, uh, to abortion in our country. Um, there's, there's really a, a, a number of states have defunded Planned Parenthood now, which is just fantastic. Um, and, and these videos, as horrific as they are, they're, they're showing people what's going on. And uh, once people see, you can't unsee. So, yeah, there's, praise God for that. Praise God for the growing movement of people in opposition to abortion. Excellent. Excellent. And praise God for that. Oh, wow. Excellent. 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 Praise God for that indeed. Indeed. Um, okay. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you um, with many requests, and we, we just delight that even while you manage the universe and the movement of the stars, you, your mind and your heart is towards us, and you tell us to bring our requests and cast them upon you, and so we do. Lord, we want to lift up Larry Wilkinson to you. I just thank you for how you've preserved his life, got him to the doctors this morning. We just pray that you would help him to figure out what, if anything, is wrong and restore him to his family. Um, and restore him to his church. And we do pray as he moves forward with uh, radiation uh, treatment on his cancer that that would give him more time and more energy back to his family, back to this body, Lord. We know that's his desire, their desire, our desire. Lord, we lift up Cindy's mom to you and just uh, pray that you would continue to strengthen her, continue to heal her, help her to get out of the hospital, back to her family. While she's there, lift up her spirits, encourage her by your grace. Help her to marvel at your glory and your wonder, even as she suffers. Uh, help her to be satisfied with you. Lord, we uh, thank you for, um, for, bringing, um, for bringing back uh, our counselors from the various camps they've been at. And now as our college students head back out, we think of them and Sarah and the others, that you would um, establish them, help them be faithful and strong where they are. Lord, we thank you for... Um, for bringing back this trip from um, Rocky High. We pray for Renee's tooth, that you just help that to continue to heal, Lord. Um, Lord, we lift up Natalie um, Conradi to you and just pray that you would help her to serve her new employers, work her new job as an act of worship to you. Not, not insincerely, not half-heartedly, but uh, heartily as unto you. Um, Lord, we... Lift up Jacob Moore, who's, who's sought out a, a new job um, in, his, in his company. And it's his desire that he would he'd be able to receive this job. And, and so we pray that if, if he's qualified, this is what's best for him, you give that to him. And Lord, prepare him to receive with joy and thanksgiving whatever you have ordained, um, whatever you decide is best. Lord, um, we think of Linda Chisholm as she's... Um, with Eddie, who's dying, with not many days, not much time left. And we, we know it's her prayer that you would save Eddie, snatch him, as it were, out of the flames, and that you would give her love and compassion and boldness to speak the gospel to Eddie, that you would, by your spirit, remove the veil and help him to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, save him, Lord, um, and, and deliver him even in these last few hours of his life. Lord, we want to lift up Jason Nightingale, who's going to come and speak to us tonight and speak your word. And just pray that you would establish your word, that it would not come back void, um, that we would be challenged and changed and encouraged and blessed by your word and the revelation of your son Jesus in your word, in the Gospel of John. Lord, establish him in that, in that ministry. Lord, we pray for Glenn Cowan and his trip um, 10-day trip um, coming up next week, and we just pray that you would um, keep him safe, help him to be faithful, help him to minister and speak the words of life to his friends on this trip, that it'd be a time for edification and growth, um, Lord, and bring him back safely to his wife and to his family and to his church. Lord, um, we, uh, 
Lord, we pray for um, Don and Connie as they strive to be a witness in their community, that you would give them boldness, that you would give them courage, and, and that you would help them to season their words with salt. Lord, we uh, think of Greg's sweet surgery this Thursday, taking out his gallbladder, and just pray that you would protect him while he goes under the knife, that you would again restore him back to his wife, back to this church. We thank you for giving um, him to us as one of our elders and for ministering and working through his weakness, um, showing your power through, through that. We pray that you continue, continue to do that, Lord. Um, and Lord, we just uh, we, we pray that you would end human abortion. We pray that you would preserve the lives of the powerless and the weak. And we, we rejoice that you have seen fit to raise growing opposition to this, that no time since Roe versus Wake has there been more opposition in our country to this. And just pray that you continue to, to grow that opposition, that you would put to an end this, this evil um, that has been um, taking so many lives. And Lord God, we lift up these and all the other prayer requests to you, all the praises for your goodness. And we just uh, rejoice that we can call you Father and God. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope I didn't forget anyone's prayer requests. I'm looking down my list, looking down my list, looking down my list. But <gasps> Oh dear. Let's pray for Doris Nation then. Okay. Lord, we just want to lift up Doris to you. And we... Um, Pray first and foremost that in her pain you would strengthen her, comfort her, that you would minister to her, that, that you would hold her up, lift her up as it were in wings of eagles, that she would not be discouraged or despondent, but that through this she would um, even more fully know who you are. We do, we do pray, though, Lord, that you would um, ease her pain, that you would restore her to, our, to this body um, for the joy of her husband, for our joy, Lord. Um, we are so blessed that she's part of this church, and so we just pray that you would restore her back to, to Rich and to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay. Any, uh, any questions on this morning's message? Psalm 8. Psalm 8. We were. Here's what happened. I know. Here's, here's the... Okay, here's, here's, here's the thing. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that apparently is an unusual thing. I'm sorry for tricking you into reading scripturally. Um, so, no, what happened was Psalm 8, um, I got to Tuesday, I came in, and Psalm 8 has um, an imprecation. You, you, Psalm 5, turn to Psalm 5. We'll, we'll get to this. We may even do Psalm 5, but... Um, it basically had something tough that I wanted more time to work on because it's, it's, it's challenging. Imprecation is the, uh, the, uh, the nice way of saying curses. And there are some psalms that have some pretty rough imprecations. This one isn't nearly as rough as some, but still challenging. And I, and I do intend and want to deal with at least one imprecatory psalm, which is a psalm of cursing one's foes. They're there. We can't just ignore them. And yet, it's going to take a lot of work, and I basically decided this wasn't the week with the new baby and the sleep that I'm getting to deal with Psalm 5. Um, then Psalm 8 turned out to be, like, way more complicated than I thought it was anyway. So it, the, Lord, the Lord, um, Lord has a sense of humor. But, you know, if you look down in um, verse 10, well, verse 9 and verse 10, there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. They have rebelled against you. And of course, the challenge is, why not pray, save them, bring them to repentance, right? Okay, I'm not quite ready to teach on that yet. So sometimes, so I got just Tuesday morning, I just, yeah. I don't, if we're gonna, we will deal with this issue because there's a number of Psalms that say even far worse things than that. We will deal with one of them, but I don't want to deal with it part way or poorly. So give me some more time. So that was, that was an executive decision on my part to, to, dot, to postpone dealing with an imprecatory Psalm. We, will, we need to get there because part of the goal is to cover the many different flavors and themes in the Psalms, but not this Sunday. Um, fair enough question. I did say Psalm 5 last week. Um, so we, you Good feud for noticing we did eight instead. Um, any other questions on Psalm 8, Psalms? Lois. Uh, in verse 
Yes. 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 Well, it's plural. It's plural Elohim. So it's the heavenly beings or the gods. That, that both can be legitimate translations. ESV says the heavenly beings, um, which is also a legitimate translation of Elohim. It could be gods. Um, what we get, though, is turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Quoting this from the Greek Septuagint brings some clarity, and there's a whole issue of dealing with... the. Okay, first off, do you guys know what the Septuagint is? Probably not. The Septuagint, about the third century BC, um, as the world became more and more Hellenized, influenced by Greek culture, the Jews made a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint because 50, this is a, this is a, a legend, it's not true, but like 70, sorry, 70 rabbis supposedly got together and worked on a translation, and they came together, and every one of them had word for word come up with the same thing. I mean, it's basically their version of like, you know, the, the King James onlyism, you know, for them. And so when the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, they will quote both the Hebrew text and the Greek translation, okay? And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 is quoting the Septuagint, and the Septuagint, the, the Jews in the 3rd century B.C. who translated Psalm 8, translated heavenly beings as angels, which admittedly is not a terribly great translation. Um, it's, it seems to be more like an interpretation. They're saying, surely they mean the angels by the heavenly beings. But then the author of Hebrews quotes it, which seems to endorse that reading. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 5 says, now it, was to angels that God, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. By the way, if you, if you have a hard time remembering verse locations, you're in good company. Try getting away with this in Awana sometime. It, it, it's written somewhere. Now, they do get a word-for-word quotation, so you've got to be able to quote it. But if you don't know where the reference is, you can just, it's somewhere. Um, it, is, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. So it does seem to me that since the heavenly beings or the gods or whatever could mean angels, and since the author of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint, that's probably the direction to go. That, that's my thinking on that. It's a fair question. There's also the difference of... Um, Praise. Jesus quotes the Septuagint in Matthew. You've established praise from the lips of children. That's the Greek translation of that psalm. The thinking being, something is coming off of the lips of children that is, God is strengthening to silence foes. And the, the assumption, I think, of the Greek translators is surely that's praise that's coming off their lips. And so they translate it, you've established praise. Jesus quotes that. So, um, and I think the NIV translates strength as praise in verse 2 as well. I could be wrong. Am I right? Has anyone got the NIV? It says praise instead of strength in Psalm 8 too? Yeah? Okay. Thought so. Okay. Good. Good. Um, other questions? Yes, Sue. Yes. That's a... Well... Let's, let's, let's look at some text. Let me back that up with text, then we'll talk about why. It's a great question. I said we're going to judge angels. I was quoting. Let's, let's go to the text I quoted. We'll look at a couple of passages, try to unpack that. Very astute observation, Sue. I was quoting 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. Pick it up in verse 1. This is good. You guys are paying attention. Well done. <laughs> I do. I do, Jeremy. I do. Okay, verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So there's, there's the passage I was referring to. Sue's question, what is that talking about? In the resurrection, in the eschaton, in, in the kingdom, now turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 2. See, I, 
as much as you probably think, dude, Jeremy can talk for a long time. I could have talked for a lot more. I had more notes. I had to skip things. I know it's hard to believe, but uh, I had it written down in here. But, but 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, this is one of these early Christian doctrinal statements or a verse of a song. It's, it's put in some sort of meter. So it seems to be, and, and when Paul introduces a text by saying this is a trustworthy saying, he seems to be, affir- what the best understanding we have is Paul is affirming the usefulness of early doctrinal statements or early songs or creeds or something. He does that five times throughout the pastoral epistles. This is a trustworthy saying. The first one, if anyone desires to be an overseer, is a faithful work that he desires. It actually rhymes in the Greek. Um, so here's the final one in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, 12, and 13. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So this judging and ruling is, is forward and future looking. Now turn to Revelation 3. Twenty-one. Seven letters to seven churches, five calls to repentance, two of the churches, no, six calls to repentance. Only the church at uh, Philadelphia is the one that's doing well. Is that right? Okay. But the church of Laodicea, so in every case he says where he can, except for Sardis, you're doing this okay. Sardis has got nothing doing, and Laodicea has got nothing okay either. But in five of the cases, he gives them a commendation, then he brings his grievance. The Lord Jesus gives his complaint in all but one case. Um, And uh, then at the end, he gives a promised reward if they'll listen and repent and obey. And so um, verse 19 of chapter 3, to those I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. By the way, this isn't a verse about evangelism. This is written to Christians. Jesus is saying to the church, guys, I'm outside. You've left me outside. <laughs> and he's standing outside the church knocking. This isn't about evangelism. This is about calling Christians to repentance. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, which is a picture of ruling with him. Now go to Revelation 20, made explicitly clear. Revelation 20. So the concept is this. We studied in Zechariah, there will be a messianic kingdom. Jesus Christ will rule the nations. He will rule the world with a rod of iron. And we, and this is the amazing reality, will be his co-regents. We will, we will execute his authority on his behalf. We will, we will rule in his government. Revelation 20, verse 6. Now let's start in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such The second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And at the end of a thousand years, when Satan is released and ultimately defeated, apparently in that judgment, even of Satan and his demons, we will participate in that judgment. That, that I think, is what he's getting at. The final condemnation and judgment of Satan, we will participate in rendering that verdict under the authority of Christ and his rule. We will be part of his court as he brings suit and punishes and brings, um, what's the word, a verdict and sentence to the angels, the evil angels, a.k.a. the demons. So that's, that's I believe, what Paul's getting at. Great question. Um, we're not doing it. So that's the point. We're, we're made a little while for, for a little while lower than the angels, but after the resurrection, we'll no longer be below the angels. We'll actually be in positions judging the angels, which is an amazing, amazing thing. Um, okay, any other? Yes, yes. I don't, I don't believe we'll be judging righteous angels. I don't believe they need to be judged. 
I mean, I, the angelic world, it, well, admittedly, is somewhat mysterious, so like, I don't think, I guess is what I'd say. I, I don't, doesn't look to me like the righteous angels need to be judged. If they do, we'll take part in that, I guess. But, but it sure looks like Satan and his angels will be judged. That that's, is clear. So at least we'll be participating in that. This, that's, I guess, the best I can say. Other questions? Any, any, any other questions? Yes, that, that, that's a really interesting question. If somebody asked my professors in seminary this, have all the angels who will fall fallen? I don't know. I the foggiest of an idea. I know that the New Testament speaks of elect angels. Zeb, can you grab me that one? Elect angels. So there certainly are some angels who will not fall. But if you ask the question, have all the angels who will fall fallen? I don't know. I, I wouldn't know how to, where to go to, to formulate that answer. I would guess. I mean, if you had to ask me, but my guesses are as worth what you pay for them. You know, nothing. Um, elect angels, you got it? Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's a great question. God in his wisdom, this makes sense. God, Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? Go to Deuteronomy 29 real fast. This is, this is always good stuff to keep in the back of my mind. Let me start wondering and going, going far afield on our thoughts. Um, I think the primary reason God has not revealed terribly much about the angelic workings and world is that's not what we need to focus on. We're not angels. Despite how many songs and cards talk about people becoming angels, nope, we, we stay men and women. We, we remain mankind. And, and so in Deuteronomy 29, 29, what? Like the angels doesn't mean angels. That's why you put the word like in. It indicates a simile. Um, I just know whose team you're on, Zeb. Um, okay, sorry. Uh, I'm just having fun with Zeb. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to our Lord, the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So Moses is right up front. Oh, there's tons of stuff God hasn't told you. Tons of it. They're gods. They, who do they belong to? Those things belong to whom? It's right there. You can just say it. The secret things belong to God. What belongs to us? The revealed things. Why? So that we can do them which might explain why there's not like eight books on angels. It wouldn't be a whole lot for us to do based on, that'd be my guess. No, every, we're, once we get, here's the order of the topics we're going through and we slowly, we're working through the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, then we get to the church, then we get to angels. And when we get to angels, the first thing I'm going to tell you is, I don't know a whole lot. Every time I look behind the curtain at angels and what they're doing, I'm surprised. They're having wrestling matches that last a month. Wouldn't have guessed, would not have guessed that. Or it's Satan having a conversation with God in heaven about Job. Again, wouldn't have guessed that. So the one thing I've learned about the little peaks I get into the angelic world is I'm not very good at predicting it, so I probably shouldn't take a bunch of guesses because every time I get to see what's going on, I'm like, oh, wow, huh. Nope, didn't see that coming. You know. So um, anyway, so yeah. We do get little peaks at the angelic world, but not, not a ton. Not, I mean, or Jesus, the, the children, their angels' face are ever before God. So children have, yeah, the little, like, what? You know, it's, anyway, more things that could have gone to this morning's message, but there wasn't time. Any other questions or thoughts? Or Yes. All righty. Yes. Hold on, hold on. Let, let us get there. Let us get there. Yes. 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 Okay. Well, that's why we've got to be careful on what grounds we condemn the Muslims. Because we're not the nation of Israel. But were we the nation of Israel living under the Mosaic law, we should kill family members who entice us to worship other gods. 
We're not, let me say that again, we are not Israel under the Mosaic law. But absolutely, read it. Let's just read it. If, verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or your wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the people who are around you, who whether near or far off from you and from the end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God has given you to dwell that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away inhabitants of the city saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire... And make search and ask diligently. So there's, there's, a, there's a measurement of evidence that needs to be there. This isn't about rumors and gossip. There's an in, diligent inquiry. But if after a, a diligent, and this isn't about vigilantism. Your hand's first, but the whole community's involved. So you don't just get to decide, I'm going to kill you because you, you're an idolater. The community has to amen this. Um, even though your hand's first, because you're the primary witness. Um, verse 15 14, and behold, it's true. So you inquire, verse 14, search, ask diligently, and behold, it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you. You shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All her in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all that spoil into the midst and open square and burn the city and all that spoil of fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. Okay, that's what it says. And so we, don't, we can't challenge the Muslims because what they're doing is mean and horrific. We have to challenge the Muslims because what they're doing is based upon lies. That, that's what we've got to challenge them. Because you're right. If we say, you know, it's obvious what they're doing is wrong because they're killing people. There was clearly a time and a place where God told his people to do the exact same thing. It boils down to, did God say... Did God say? Um, and and so we don't lose sight of that. What those men did on 9-11 made all the sense in the world if their premises were true. Okay? What, what the hijackers did for 9-11 made perfect sense. Was perfect. It's way too easy to say they're crazy. They're not. They believe lies. And they act upon them and do terrible, terrible things. But the problem is they believe lies. If that is the only way to please Allah, if that is the only way to ensure oneself a place in heaven, then what they did made all the sense in the world, which is why it's kind of frightening to watch some of these guys be calm and collective and, you know, Osama bin Laden sitting with his family chatting. You, you, we'd feel better if he had a curly mustache and was sort of laughing maniacally. He believes lies. People believe that unborn children aren't people. They believe lies. They do terrible things. They believe lies. And so you're, you're back to your question um, of how do we deal this with a loving God? The first thing we've got to say is, for Israel, this is loving. I mean, notice the point is to purify the people. So God's concern is for the purity of his people. God's and, and God has given the state the power of the sword. And the community, the state in this case, is rendering the verdict. So the, the witness is their hand. So notice this isn't vigilantism. All the people participate, which then also would have to mean all the people have to be persuaded this has in fact happened. You would have to, with that same standard of evidence in Israel, convince the community this person has in fact enticed you. And you jump over to Deuteronomy 29. You want to see a standard of evidence. Because um, this is a civil code for a nation. And Israel was a theocracy. I mean, there was no religious freedom in Israel. In the Messianic kingdom, there will not be religious freedom. The Ten Commandments do not, are not in favor of religious freedom. You, they say, you shall have no other gods. Right? I mean, get that. The Ten Commandments do not give religious freedom. They don't. Christ will not rule a kingdom with religious freedom. All the nations that don't go up to worship at the Feast of Booze, what happens to them? No rain, right? There's no religious freedom. I'm not saying religious freedom is a bad thing. Under human rule, religious freedom is a lot better than 
than the theocratic rule by people without God directing it. But Israel was a theocracy. And so in Deuteronomy, um, is it 19 or 29? Hold on. 29. It's, maybe it's 19. Hold on. Give me a second. I was just here the other day. Um, 19. Deuteronomy 19. So this is important because you've got to understand this isn't, we want, at first blush, um, we might be tempted to think, oh, this is barbaric. No, this, this is ordered. This is, this is judicial process. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a standard of, of evidence that must be met. It's very clear. A standard of evidence, by the way, which is brought absolutely word for word into the New Testament. When we read this, see if it reminds you of some passages. Verse 15 of chapter 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. So you, you can't just have one person say, yeah, you called us to worship other gods. That's not sufficient. For any wrongdoing, a connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Does that, does that sound like anything you're aware of in the New Testament? What? First discipline, and, and John 5, Jesus. If I testify concerning myself, my testimony is not valid, but there's another who bears witness to me, my Father who's in heaven, and the works that I do, and the Scripture. So Jesus cites three witnesses to his authenticity of Messiah, because Jesus recognizes this standard of evidence, and I wouldn't expect you to take my word for it alone, he says, but my Father spoke at my baptism, the Scriptures speak of me, my miracles testify. I've got three other witnesses to my Messiahhood. That's, that's at the end of John 5. Um, so two or three witnesses um, shall the charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest will hear in fear. So, so there's, that's the standard of evidence required for a, a judicial verdict. So go back to, uh, where were you? You were in Deuteronomy 13 or? 13. So let's, let's harmonize scripture. So this isn't just one person getting mad and saying that person's an idolater and then everyone just picks up stones. No, there's, there's a judicial process. There's a diligent inquiry. There has to be two or three witnesses. This is ordered. But if it's true, once that verdict of evidence has come in, that this person has called others to go worship other gods, God said, put them to death. What do you think the risen Lord's going to do in the kingdom when people don't come and worship at the Feast of Booths, when people want to worship other gods? He isn't going to say, well, I love them, that's okay. He's going to break them with a rod of iron. That's what he's going to do. And, and that's loving for everybody else. Because we only see sin as sin when it hurts other people. We don't see sin as sin when it hurts God. And so we understand, oh, you hurt that person, go to jail. Oh, you hurt that person, you kidnap them, put them to death. What happens when someone hurts God? Well, God says, I'll, I'll put him to death. And, and so we aren't under this law now. But there is a New Testament equivalent to this. If anyone who comes after me does not hate his mother, brother, father, daughter, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, there's a standard of loyalty here that he says to the community. Because notice the emphasis here of, of this closeness. What he's saying is, I don't care how closely you, much you love this person. Your loyalty to me is greater than your loyalty to them. I don't care if this is the wife you adore, the child that you cling to. If, if, if they're betraying me, you're on my side, not theirs. And that standard is absolutely upheld by Jesus. Now, it's clear his kingdom isn't brought in with a sword. We're not called to kill people. Let's be really clear on that. But that standard of loyalty is absolutely unwavering. God is calling upon us a loyalty that says, I'm, I choose God, and if that means I lose my relationship with my mother, my father, my children, it'll hurt, but so be it. That, that standard of loyalty is, is unaltered. So that, that's the line of continuity into the new covenant, what doesn't change. What does change is we're not a political nation killing people. But when God's people do constitute a political nation in the Messianic kingdom, there will be political consequences for treason. And that's really what false religion is, is treason, right? If your God is your king and your ruler, then when you follow another God, you're, you're committing treason. We understand in America, if someone commits treason, we put them to death. So when the subjects of the king 
commit treason against him, they're put to death. We just... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're... Well, yeah, and because they're wrong. God hasn't told them to do that. Only it's the wrong God. They're on the wrong side of the equation. They're the ones trying to pull people away from... Right. Away from the one Right, right. Right. Only God can sanction killing. Only God can sanction killing. And so at Genesis 9, God sanctions human government to kill. If someone takes, is, takes, sheds human blood, then the human blood, their blood will be shed. You take a life, your life is forfeit. And God, God sanctions Israel with very clear criteria, with a very clear um, standard of evidence. This isn't just rumor and hearsay. This is diligent inquiry, two or three witnesses, clear evidence. You do to the malicious witness exactly what he was going to have done to them. So there's this, you better be, if you're going to give testimony, you better be right. And then he sanctions Israel to put to death people who commit treason. I mean, that's false religion in Israel is treason. Um, and so that, the question then is, has God sanctioned the Muslims to kill? No, he has not. It shouldn't surprise us, though, that Satan's counterfeit looks an awful lot like ours. And Satan has raised up um, zealots. With, with unique, he has called on his followers an equal zeal. If they're not for me, kill them. I mean, in other words, it, it proves more and more there can't be this sort of middle, we can all get along. No, we can't. They get it, and we get it. And we're not going to kill them, but there can't be any peace between the temple of Baal and the house of the living God. There never will be any peace. Um, yes, Kevin. Well, what's tough, what's tough with capital punishment is Scripture sanctions the state to bear the sword, both in Genesis 9 and Romans 13. Scripture does not tell us every instance where capital punishment should be applied. So as a Christian, I certainly believe the state, it is right in certain circumstances for the state to kill people. The most clear, based on Genesis 9, would be murderers, right? But it gets trickier when you're like, okay, what about people who commit treason? Is that worthy? Of, so you, a Christian can have an honest discussion about which crimes should qualify for the death penalty. What about unintended manslaughter? Should that be a death? You know. And so, as a Christian, I think we have to recognize that it, there are places and times where the state can righteously kill. We, we've got to recognize that or disagree with God has given Caesar the power of the sword and disagree with Romans, uh, Genesis 9. However, we can have a good discussion over what crimes would... I mean, in other words, I would disagree with a, with a law that said jaywalking brought the death penalty. I would say that's probably not a I would vote against it. That'd be an unrighteous law, right? So it's not as simple as do you support the death penalty or not. It's in what cases do you support the death penalty? And that, I think there is some leeway. Zeb, and then I saw a hand back there. Yes. Going back to Genesis yes. 9, the, the basis for the death penalty is that it is fundamentally an assault, On, an intentional assault upon the image of God. God, yeah. Which then is, to some degree, Right. For example, rape is a capital punishment. Um, here we see false god, false worship is a capital punishment. So the, so the idea behind a capital punishment is anything that is assaulting the image of God and right. the proper worship of him right. is a valid... So we get parameters for what types of things should be capital punishment, certainly. I'm just saying it's not as simple as do you support capital punishment. Well, certainly in some circumstances, yes. Which ones? If the state wants to put people to death for being Christians, no, I don't support capital punishment. You know, um, so, it's, so it's so. And do you want to turn to Genesis nine just to see this? Because this is really there are things in Genesis that we call creation ordinances. They're they're graces of God given to all peoples. Marriage is one of them. Marriage is not a uniquely Christian institution. It's given to all peoples. Um, they can receive it or change it or do what they want with it, but he's been given to all peoples. And human government to restrain evil, and, and this is ratified in Romans 13, is as well. But the basis of it here is in, in Genesis 9. Um, verse so, 5. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it. And for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And again, this gets back to our psalm this morning. The dignity we have is not inherent to us. It's a borrowed or an endowed dignity because we bear God's image. This is what's tough for us. If someone harms, say someone murders Uriah the Hittite and steals his wife. David says against you, and you only have I sinned. We want to say, no, no, Uriah the Hittite was a really good guy. He was loyal. He was faithful. Yeah, in some way, 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 way lesser sense, God sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, the real crime is, how dare you, David, treat someone who bears God's image that way? How dare you take the image of God with such contempt? We don't generally think that way. God's much more God-centered than we generally are, which is why the issue of abortion is so tough, because that's fundamentally the issue. These are image bearers of the living God. This is about God, but if you don't recognize that, if you don't see the image of God in unborn children, then it's a totally different. Then if all you have is the first half, we're these tiny little specks in the universe. It doesn't matter. We're just an insignificant blip. If you just have the first half of that, of that contrast, not filled in by the other half, but he has crowned us with glory and honor, then it's really easy to you know, kill babies because it's only when you fill in the other half but he has crowned us with glory and honor, and that glory and honor is his, stamped upon us as image bearers. Um, that's p- a big reason why it's very hard to get anywhere in discussion, because we've got beliefs and presuppositions and, and assumptions that, just, that are not shared. The fundamental horror of abortion is, and this is as, as much as my heart breaks for the babies themselves, the fundamental horror of abortion is the assault on God. First and foremost, it is a horrific assault to those Innocent, I mean, God cares with the innocent, the defenseless. Amen and amen. It's not to minimize our horror at what's being done to these poor babies. It's to elevate the horror of what's being done to the God whose image they bear. You know? um, that, that's, what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to minimize for a second that evil and horrific deeds are being done to children. It's just so much more it's being done to God. But you're never going to see that. Someone, that's not going to click for someone unless they believe the biblical text, which is why most of our outrage is not shared because we're coming to the table with beliefs that aren't shared. Did I see a hand? Yes, elite. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is why I'm saying, it's indi- I think biblically it is indisputable the state has the authority to kill. The next question then is, when should it use that authority? And there's all sorts of room for discussion on that point. So Christians should be agreed. We, I don't think you can biblically defend an absolute pacifist position. This, it's always wrong to kill. Always, always, always. God's granted the authority to the state. Now there's plenty of room to have a discussion what standard of evidence and what crimes bring in the death penalty. And I think that that, there's room for some wiggle room and some disagreement on whether or not, you know, if you were drunk driving and killed somebody, or if you were, you know, you you hit somebody and they miscarried, or if you were, you know, any number of accidental deaths, should you put that person to death? And you may have to go study the Old Testament because um, I'm pretty sure... Um, accidental manslaughter still brought the death penalty. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, I'm pretty sure. No? Check, check it out, Zeb. Check it out. Not, not miscarriage. I know that doesn't. But accidental manslaughter. You can flee to the city of the Avenger, but the Avenger can kill you. I'm pretty sure the Avenger of blood can still kill you lawfully. Right, no. There's God to make a middle room. It's like, if you can get to the city of refuge in time, you can be saved. But it was lawful for the avenger of blood to kill even in the case of manslaughter. Cities of... Strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and 
So you get both. It's lawful to kill him, but there's an, there's an exception for him to survive. The, man, the, the, the Avenger of Blood, if he leaves that city, the Avenger of Blood can strike him down. Okay. Well, no, so, the law, so, the, so even Israel's law has some flexibility there. It's like, I get that if, you know, someone accidentally kills my wife, there's a, there's a getting, that, that husband's going to want to go and get, you know, revenge. And it's hard to deny that, like, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Come on. But there's also a way of escape and mercy provided. No, no fair. I'm just saying, it's even an example of you could see both, both aspects. Oh, yeah, you kill him. Yeah. No, no. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of this city shall send him and take him out from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him. You shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So, yeah, we've got some pretty good principles from Israel's law of what types of crimes deserve the death penalty. Yes. Murder. Ten Commandment prohibits murder, not kill. It's, it's better translated murder. Thou shalt not murder. Um, good question. Good question. It's time, folks. Wow. Good discussion. Good question. Thank you, Wanda, for the question. Great question. Hard stuff. Yeah, but we've got to deal with Islam at the issue of lies. Because otherwise we're open to the same chart. Well, in Israel they killed people. No, fair enough. The real issue is God told them to. He didn't tell you to do that. So, no, he's, he's God. And unless God tells you to kill somebody, in other words, like, like, like take Abraham. If any one of us took our kid up on a hill to go kill them, we'd lock him up. What matters at the end of the day is, did or did not God tell you to do that? And if God told you to do that, that's a high point of faith. If God didn't tell you to do that, put the handcuffs on him. <laughs> right? <laughs> 